What an amazing article. Oh, hi there. Steve Disbro, publisher of GS Plus Magazine here. Welcome to the 1992 A2 Central Summer Conference of Videotape Look Back. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, hey, what's this GS Plus guy doing on my A2 Central tape? Well, it's quite simple, actually. When they were putting the show together, Uncle Doss, better known as Tom Weiser to his family, and Ellen Rosenberg, the editor of A2 Central Magazine, called me up and asked if I wouldn't be interested in putting together some entertainment for the show. So, like a complete idiot, I said yes. But we'll get to see that a little later on tonight. First, we're going to look at a videotaped interview between Uncle Doss and Steve Wozniak, creator of the Apple II computer. So, grab a bowl of your favorite popcorn, a glass of your clearest water, and join me as we watch this interview, won't you? The things we're doing here is we're celebrating the 15th anniversary of the Apple II. You uh, uh, introduced it at the West Coast Computer Fair uh, in April, 15 years ago. Oh my goodness. Uh, and so part of what I wanted to do was talk a little bit about um, what preceded that. I understand from reading that you actually had worked on several computers before the Apple II or the Apple I. I think a lot of people think that you just sort of did it, and they don't know how much experience that you had before you did the first one. Yeah, it turns out that the Apple II was never thought of as, boy, what could I build that would be a great product, you know, to sell. There was none of the selling idea. It was really just to show off to friends at clubs. And, and I was so shy that I wouldn't even raise my hand and tell people how, to, how you could do things well. But if they came up to me at the club and said, show me what you've got, it was kind of a way I could be proud and show it off. And the Apple II was really a culmination of uh, a lot of different directions that my life had gone by accident, like everyone's does. You know, you get interested in certain things. When you're in electronics, you go out and design a product, you read a magazine, you get an idea, you, you hook up a little circuit in your house. The various circuits I worked on had to do with things like video games, playing around with color in a project at Atari, um, you know, and a prior computer, the Apple One. So I just kind of merged design techniques and little product you know, techniques I had worked on in my whole life and put them in one nice machine. And it was really a nice machine to have it work and also to have on my desk, I mean, my desk at work at Hewlett Packard as well as in my home. And it was great, and then I just chose, I wanted a language that I could write some simple programs to calculate logic circuits and help me design clever logic circuits using fewer parts at Hewlett Packard. Um, I just chose the language basic because for these small computers it was the hot language. And I'd never really written a language before, but all my life I had tried to. I sat around like a hobbyist trying to sit there in my math class, but writing, um, writing out... Uh, mnemonic codes and all, to try to pretend I was writing uh, a basic compiler. I tried to write Fortran compilers before, never basic. And the thing is, I could never test it because I could never get time on a computer. I could never test it, whether I had learned anything. This was the first product, and it was a very strange one, the Apple II. Well, the Apple I was strange because I wrote the code for it and then built the hardware. Usually you build the hardware first. And so part of what you, I mean, just to emphasize what you said before this, you were actually writing Fortran compilers, but you never had an opportunity to run them. That's correct. I, ne I never took a course. I never read a book. I simply started thinking out, well, what little pieces of code would have to look at what gets typed on a keyboard and put it into order and somehow start tracking, you know, putting it into chunks parsing it, if you will, and I, I read every book that could come my way, I would read chapters on little things, and a friend of mine was going to MIT and sent me a lot of good information from classes he had, you know, that talked about parsing and syntax and 
I just had all these ideas in my head, but then I uh, came up with a real clever idea for writing my own compiler and wrote it one day for basic interpreter, if you will. Um, the, the books talk about one of the other things that you had done, um, uh, what they call the cream soda computer. You and one of your friends uh, right. got parts from various places and actually tried to put one together. Yes, and the cream soda computer um, was the end of about five years from high school on through for at least a few years. I had been designing computers. I would get a description of every mini computer that came out, and I would... I would start trying to design my version of it. And I got, I was very clumsy at first, and it took, you know, 30 pages to do what really wouldn't have worked anyway, because I wasn't good enough. But I started getting better and better and better at designing the parts of a computer, you know, the instruction register, the other registers, the arithmetic unit to do additions, and some memory address and stuff. And, and every time they came out with new chips from the companies here in Silicon Valley, I'd get a manual on chips. And then I would try to redesign a computer that I designed before, say the Variant 620i, try to redesign it with fewer parts. And that became my big direction to figure out the way to design it with the minimum number of parts. Well, all my life I wanted to build one of these computers. I might have had 40 designs by the time I was done my first year of college, but I could never get a company to give me the parts to build one. And finally, I, got, um, uh, I designed a real clever computer using almost no parts at all because it wasn't an existing computer. It was my own design. And it was designed with the intent to have the very minimum number of parts and have a very minimal instruction set that I knew was enough. And I designed it, and I couldn't get the parts, but I was working for a company in Sunnyvale, and one of my bosses said he had some friends at the company, and he'd get me some samples for free. And I gasped, because I didn't know you could really get samples for free easily. You know, but now I realize that, you know, you can if you're really, if you're a potential uh, client, a purchaser of these products. So he got me a set of chips, and I built this little computer, designed it in, in a couple of weeks, designed it completely, and then we spent a couple of weeks in a friend's garage and slaughtered it up, both of us. And we drank cream soda late into the nights, night after night after night, doing the soldering very carefully, and uh, we called it the cream soda computer, and it worked. So and that was in about, that was in about 1972, maybe. 1972. Yeah, and, the, and that was... Um, it was, you know, it was a small little 8-bit computer with only 256 bytes of RAM. But if you think about it, that's the computer that, that they were coming out with in 1975 that kind of kicked off the whole microcomputer revolution because of the fact it was very inexpensive in 75. It was very expensive and difficult, and nobody could foresee this kind of a market in 1971 or 2. I just wanted a computer for myself. I, mean, I told my dad when I was in high school that someday I was going to, a computer costs as much as a house. Well, Dad, I'll live in an apartment, and I'll have a computer someday. Uh, well, okay, so this is real interesting. So we're talking about this 15th year anniversary for the Apple II, but for you, you've really been doing computers uh, since, what did you say, since you were senior in high school? No, I, no, I had uh, computer projects back as far as fifth grade. I had complicated uh, switch and light arrangements that were a lot of logic, and I had... Uh, um, a tic-tac-toe computer made out of transistor and diode gates on a piece of plywood in, in sixth grade. 1962, I think. 1962. Yeah. So, uh, this is really, for you, it's a 30th anniversary. I mean, you basically oh, were yeah. playing with computers for 15 years before... Oh, sure. Before I, I, I went through successful science fair projects, and then I found out what real computers were and started designing my own, but I could never get a... I never got to touch one. There were none in our schools. There were none. I could get it. All I could do was get a manual from somebody at a company, and I could study the manual, and I just fell in love with the fact there was this whole thing of base 2 mathematics is where it starts. 
you know, and there's there's numbers in base two and hexadecimal arithmetic, and there's logical operations like ORs, and, and then there's ANDs, and you can combine things into instruction sets and add a few instructions together to make a subroutine. It was just all learning. That was my favorite thing in life. Uh, let's um, move on a little bit. That after the Apple II was introduced, you were involved in in the drive controller and the parallel card that I know of. Uh, both of them um, items that um, um, exemplify what you said about building uh, um, logic boards with the fewest number of parts uh, possible. Well, Tom, I was also involved with um, not only the parallel board and the floppy disk controller, but also both of the serial boards that came out, more one than the other. This, these were, you're talking about the two before the super serial card, or one of those was? Um, before the super serial card, we had an, an equivalent serial card that I wasn't that responsible for. Or was I? I think I wrote all the firmware, maybe for both of our serial cards. We had two serial cards, but one was almost no parts at all, and I was involved with that. And the floppy disk controller was my favorite project. Um, I, I've read that you, you basically finished the disk controller and then realized if you made one more change, you could have it with no crossovers, and so you stayed up for a couple more nights and redid the whole thing. Yes, well, by an unusual situation, I was not only the designer, and I would sit down and breadboard it, test it out, and develop the floppy disk controller with very few parts, but I also lucked out, and I got to lay out the PC board, which is normally something the designer doesn't do. And as you're laying, I'm laying out the PC board just as precisely as I designed, trying to have the very minimum number of crossover speed-throughs. If you lay the chips out in this order, it saves two, two feed-throughs, and then if you switch this one chip around, it saves another. And I got through the whole layout with only three feed-throughs, and then looking at the circuit, looking at it, the layout, you have to look at it like a map. It's topological. All of a sudden, I realized I could save one feed-through if I had simply had this shift register, redesign the whole circuit so it's going from left to right instead of right to left, change a couple of bit orders around there, and then don't get a crossover, but here I save one. And uh, so I relayed it out again. It had to be that perfect. Uh, and, and you just did it because it was fun, right? I was up just late at night. These are, there's certain kinds of hours in your life that just get created largely because you've got some internal motivation, especially if it's something you're very, very proud of. You want it as perfect as possible. And if it, it's kind of like um, Hemingway was known for writing very concisely. And he would spend days sometimes just to get one sentence exactly perfect. You know, you could just sort of know there is a more perfect way and keep seeking it and seeking it and seeking it. And it was that kind of energy that drove a lot of my designs, just a lot of late hours and hours and hours to save. Sometimes I would count a section of code would be 420 bytes. And I would work for a week, day and night, and somehow get it down to 400, 419. One of the projects I did was I wrote a program called ProntoDOS. Oh, well, that's great to hear, Tom. You know what? I must remember your name. I used ProntoDOS. I touched every single product. Well, I will tell you, every single product for quite a few years that came up for the Apple II, every single one that I could ever possibly get a hold of, I got a hold of and spent every single night going through the manuals, testing them, running them, using them. And I remember using PronoDOS, but I can't remember exactly how long it was for. Well, one of the things, uh, of course, the, uh, you have a reputation of having written Apple DOS. But when I disassembled it to do PronoDOS, it appeared to me that at least three different people had worked on it. What's the truth of the situation? Uh, three different people worked on it. I wrote the very lowest level routines. I worked very closely with Randy Wigington, who tied little reading and writing and seeking routines together in a routine called read, write, track, sector, which given a parameter of 
where to go on the disk and read how much data, it would call the other routines in the right order and cause it to happen. And his routine was was um, very tightly written, too. It wasn't as hard a type of code to write. Um, the code I wrote for those little, small, lower-level routines, especially for 16-sector DOS, I don't think I or anyone else could ever do again, almost. But Randy's code was very good, but it wasn't... He didn't have to do that. It's when you get down to working with hardware, and you're trying to turn signals on and turn them off in a very precise order, and keep things at a very low bit count, and keep things you know, fast, doing the impossible. That's what I like to do with my code. Randy was one level above me, and an outside company wrote the entire DOS above that, and it was very, very loosely written, almost like you would see coming out of a higher-level language. Going back in history, um, we have uh, the Apple II was out, and then the Apple III came out, and the Apple III um, had some problems with um, uh, the chips coming loose and various things the first six months. And I've always wondered whether it would have been technically possible back at the time that the Apple III was introduced to bring out a computer more like the Apple IIe, and whether you have any feeling for, well, A, was it technically possible? Perhaps there's things about the IIe that, that, that required another year to cook before the before then, or a year or two, I forget exactly how long it was. But do you have any feel for, for that? What would have happened if we'd have had an Apple TV instead of Mac? Well, looking back on the, um, I always, I, I, had a lo I have a lot of mixed feelings now. I used, but I always felt that the Apple II had a lot of ways to in, enhance its abilities and bring it up and, you know, have made it much more compatible in that marketplace and a good viable contender based upon its large sales. But then maybe if the company had its hands more on the Apple II than they did, they might have destroyed a lot of the, um, the potential that, that came out of third parties. I think looking back now, I've sort of changed my direction. I think an Apple III type of product was the right strategy for Apple, but I think it needed a lot of patience to allow the marketplace to grow, and everything had to be done very well. It had to work well. It had to cost very little. It had to... Um, um, be very expandable, and a lot of these things weren't done. And one of the, I think the real biggest problem with the Apple III is it had really not much it could do right away. There wasn't much software, and it was difficult to use, especially compared to the Apple II days where everything was easy. And it was not very open and easy for other people to write applications for, to write drivers for. Um, I just heard this over and over, and there were so many reasons. And it got a bad name that even when they revived it with the Apple III Plus maybe a year later, fix some of the problems, I think they should have changed the name to Apple IV, because by then Apple III had a name of, you know, miss the mark. And, uh, boy, if you, you, sometimes that can happen in the first couple of months of a new product. It can just get established as a hot fad or just a loss and nobody wants it, and it just hangs on. That image hangs on forever. And um, it was a shame to see the company put all of its resources and efforts. I mean, everyone working at every desk had an Apple III and was trying to do things to make the Apple III go for sales, and the Apple II was just selling itself. So those were the days. Um, the, were, were you active at Apple while the Apple IIe was being designed? Oh, actually, it was an interesting story. Um, Walt Grodner was an engineer that we had worked with while he was at Cinertech trying to get him to design the Apple II on one chip. And we gave up that project to make a real low-cost Apple II, but he came to work for us at Apple, and he loved the Apple II. He thought we should do more expanded Apple IIs, like the Apple IIe. Um, you know, move it into, you know, 80-column world and more memory. And, and so he sat down, and he just designed it on his own time in the lab. 
And he went to Steve Jobs one day, and Steve Jobs kind of didn't want any Apple II projects to be going on, especially any enhanced ones that kind of competed with the Apple III. We didn't want people's minds to cross over. The Apple II was the 40-column home and hobby work. The Apple III in people's minds had to be professional business, you know, for productivity uses. Um, so we didn't really want that kind of a project uh, as the Apple IIe was, but Walter said that he would design in the ability to, um, to add those features to the, the Apple IIc, which was under development, into his chips at the same time. And so he got to work on his chips, and uh, really he was almost single-handedly did it, the Apple IIe. That was his project. He, he really made it go. Once it, once it got there, it was kind of obvious the Apple III really hadn't ever taken off, wasn't selling well, and we needed something more in the Apple II, because you got to keep coming out with newer products to keep your sales up. And here is this Apple IIe, pretty far along in their development, you know, on a single chip, you know, a couple of chips. So that became the product. And so that's where the Apple IIe came from, which then uh, carried the company for the next couple of years. Uh, uh, at least uh, I understand it. I mean, that, that's right. The, uh, we have, uh, thinking back then, VisiCalc was kind of the software that made the uh, Apple II Plus, and then the Apple II came out, Apple IIe, the Apple IIc, and Apple Works. Okay, Apple Works. Well, I get, asked, I get asked very frequently every year in several interviews, you know, what's the best program you ever had? And it's always, always Apple Works. That was just, it just took a, such a good step of integration, and some of the other integrated packages I've been impressed by in modern days, but I've just never seen a program that seemed to be that perfect a, you know, a match to a lifestyle as Apple Works was. Uh, yeah, I've always laughed that back um, about the time the Mac was introduced, the info worlds and all the experts were talking about how the next great wave was going to be integrated software. Uh, but the only computer that integrated software ever really was a success on in those days uh, was the Apple II, and of course they never talked about that. Um, and Apple Works, Apple Works um, was not only an, an integrated package, but as integrated packages go, it was a very good optimization, being so simple to use to understand and do things correctly, and not have them go some different way on you. And it was really Mike Markle that was pushing for this kind of software. He would see his own personal needs all through Apple's history, and he would see what kind of program he would like to do two or three tasks he's doing today modern times, he would redefine a product, and he would start talking to other people who were good implementers. And he talked to Don Williams, who wrote AppleWorks. And Mike was really kind of the guiding direction for it. If, if I've got the history right, then the last project that you were involved in at Apple was, there, there was one called the Apple IIx, which preceded the GS. That's correct. The Apple IIx was, had some of the, the fundamental ideas of, of the GS, which was to make a faster, larger memory, more graphics modes on the screen to make the, um, the Apple II, you know, the next stage. And to do some clever designs to basically use the same chips but get twice the performance, maybe. I mean, you have to start out with that kind of idea. And um, basically it was just saying, hey, the Apple II needs to be pushed one level higher. I think that that would be, anyone would say, we agree this, this, this project should be a go and be given a lot of resources if they said the Apple II ought to go one level higher. And anyone who felt the Apple II shouldn't go a level higher would pretty much say, "Man, I can't justify it in terms of payback." And I think, and it lost out. 
And uh, but, but eventually the GS made it. Was it well? I don't, again, that may have been after you left. But was that another one of these stories? If it was a product that was uh, that was ready when uh, the product was needed? Or? Not really. No. The, the GS. There were a couple of good thinkers, um, a couple of smart engineers that had good ideas that loved the ideas of a more powerful Apple II that set out on their own to define how their ideas of how to improve it and make it a very regular structure and basically came up with a, um, good ways of doing the graphics and the memory that integrated into the Apple II base that was there, the architectures, the software base, and yet give it a clean approach to higher graphics. And they, they came up with a clever sound method, hence GS. And uh, that was, um, boy, it was real pleasing to me to see that they had really come up with, somebody had come up with a couple of clever ideas in their head, and that sometimes makes a project go when you come up with a clean way to do it. One of the books, uh, uh, the historical books on the computer industry, talks about the WAS principle, by which they mean uh, the design whereby you leave a computer open for third-party people to add to it, and you tell everybody how it works. And uh, the book uh, says, I think it's right, that when IBM created the uh, IBM PC, um, they copied a lot of the Apple II, and one of the things they copied was that in particular, the, the idea of leaving it open, uh, which before the Apple II was uh, something that was hardly ever done, and certainly in the computer industry as a whole, a big money-making one where we had IBM and Seven Dwarves, uh, well, you know, myths, myths of our time can come about by accidental little articles that are catchy. And one of the myths of our time is that, um, that you know, Bill Gates' meetings with uh, Don Estridge and telling him to make the machine open so that third parties could have a big participation, and that that was a big key to the IBM success. And it's so catchy that regardless of other factors that have might made the IBM success happen, that might have made the IBM popular, um, regardless of those other factors, this is the one that gets major credit. It's very good sounding. It's part of the myth. Um, the fact is, I am very much for open computers, for um, a lot of freedom for third parties to be able to come in and easily design clever products and add-ons. I'm always for that very, very much. It wasn't the case that I really thought out the Apple II that way and said it's got to be open. As a matter of fact, the, um, the myth regarding me being for openness and Steve Jobs being for closeness we both are. I am for openness, he's for closeness in a lot of cases, but for different reasons than the way it sounds. But in the case of the Apple II, I had designed a very clever circuit. Um, before the Apple II, some little computers were coming out, and they each had to have some toggle switches on them to set their address. And that means they had to have chips to compare addresses, and it took a few chips back in those days to do it. And I don't like adding a lot of chips. Well, imagine a computer that has eight slots. Every slot might have five chips plus two thumbwheel switches simply to give them all addresses. I thought it out and said, let's take the address bits out of the microprocessor, decode them down a little bit, which you have to do anyway to address memory, and simply put in one little eight-way decoder and decode eight lines, one to each slot. Now, each slot has a special set of addresses of its own, predefined C100, C200, C300, and they don't need any toggle switches or chips. And so I did in one chip what would have taken 40 chips. I was clever. I'm clever whenever I think of a real clever way to save chips. So I wanted this. This design was beautiful. Steve Jobs came along and said, let's build it with two slots. Well, now, my reason for eight slots wasn't to have the most slots. That wasn't my only reason. I really knew that you do need slots a lot because that would be a little pattern. 
Um, but, uh, but my real reason was I had this clever circuit that I wanted to show off this way, and it just did eight slots so beautifully. Like the chips, to some extent, sometimes should define the product, rather than marketing concept of people should define a product, and then you put in the chips to do that. So um, that was really the, my reason for eight slots, and when Steve said, oh, it's got to be two, I said, well, get yourself another computer, and we went with eight. Uh, well, so this is this is incredible. So the whole open thing was because you could do it with no chips instead of 40 chips. Well, that's a lot of where this rumor comes from. A lot of people then gave me credit for having wanted eight slots so people could build boards and still wanted two. Just to use fewer chips. Yeah, yeah it was a, because I had a clever circuit, that was the other half. It was half and half. Well, from the perspective of 15 years or 30 years, if we go back even before the Apple One, what, what would you say uh, was the best part of the Apple II experience for you personally? The, the two to three years at the start of things was an experience, um, even before the company, if you add another year in there, um, just the experiences I had in the club of designing computers, of starting to get some notoriety, of starting a company, of you know leaving Hewlett Packard and forming a real big company, of having successes. But the first few years of the company, Apple, nobody left. Everybody was excited, felt we were part of a revolution. It's a feeling like you almost can't go to a company now and have that feeling about. It's very rare. And Apple is not a normal normal expectation. You know, follow all the rules we did. You may not have the same story we had. We just had a lot of, um, you know, young, unsuccessful people running around doing an extremely successful thing. And it was it was an amazing time. Nobody left the company. Nobody got fired for that time. We were all good friends. It was um, very difficult to to find again. How about the worst part? Do you want to talk about what did you find the worst part of this uh, whole deal? Well, I don't know. Some of the worst parts I could talk about. Um, uh, probably I got at a certain point in time. We all of a sudden had about forty engineers, software and hardware, and I wasn't critical to the company like I had been. And I could just sit around and kind of do anything. And But, you know, any job I took on, there was another engineer who could do that job well enough. Um, so I wasn't really absolutely needed, and I wasn't going to be a manager and run the company because that wasn't me. And that started, but I had a plane crash, and that was sort of an out for me, in a sense. Now, remember that. You, you After the crash, you uh, had uh, some amnesia for a while? Yeah, and then I went to uh, finish my last year of college and get my college degree at Berkeley, and um, even while I was out, I was still very active in the computer world, going to a lot of computer clubs, talking, meeting people, seeing what was going on, and boy, I'd be in the outside world talking to people and seeing them do these incredible things with Apple IIs everywhere, and very rarely see an Apple III. And I'd come back to the company, and all you would see inside the company was Apple III's, all you'd hear people talking was Apple Apple III language, and all you'd see them working on was, was some new Apple III project to make it start selling, to make it go further. And I got a very bad feeling. I just felt that something was horribly wrong and being missed when there, were, there was almost not a single Apple II project, maybe one or, one or two projects allowed in the company at that time. And I thought there must be some big push from the top to prove that they were right about the Apple III all along, and or something like that. And that was the hardest experience I ever had in Apple, was seeing how it was dealt with, because the flaws in the product, um, I saw a lot of different ones than most people see. But, um, it just, uh, I think the, the biggest flaw in the Apple III was it was a very closed machine. It had to be very difficult to build for slots and difficult to use slots. It was difficult to interface third-party software into. Um, it was just difficult to take a lot of random directions. If you did exactly what Apple intended you to do, you were in great shape. But, of course, one year later, that's always out of date. 
And it, here's an example of what happened in the Apple III during its design. We had to actually put extra chips into the Apple III to disable the 80 column mode when you went to the Apple II mode. When you flipped your switch to Apple II, you, you would have had 80, 80 characters for free. An Apple II with 80 characters board plugged in, okay? And everybody was using that then. And we actually put in extra chips to turn that off so that people wouldn't in their heads get psychologically confused um, between the Apple II being a home hobby machine and the Apple III being a business machine. Um, there's something wrong. I don't know where that thinking comes from. It doesn't come from an engineer. You know, and some marketing thinking, that psychological thinking that just isn't right. You should have made the best Apple II inside the Apple III and the best Apple III, and you would have had um, a better machine. So there's all these lim artificial limitations. You mentioned uh, you traveled to user groups. I understand that uh, for a while there you were traveling to Australia and New Zealand every year to go to user group meetings. Uh, that was that was probably the rarest one of all, and it was a very, very good memories for me. It was to New Zealand. sent me a letter knowing, it was tongue-in-cheek, knowing that sent him a letter, invited him to a, a Pizza Hut champagne breakfast speech in Wellington, New Zealand. They knew I'd turn that down. So I had to accept it. And that was that was my favorite uh, acceptance of all, you know, going to a club. Uh, it's just so such an odd invitation and so out of the way. And made some good friends down there, liked the people. I became their patron, patron and still am. And uh, I had a lot of good time on. Uh, I think it was two or three years I did that. Um, well, how about um, I have a list of names here of, of various people. Uh, sure. How about Del Yoka? Um very, very high respect for Del Yoakum. He would work very, very hard and meticulously. I think meticulous is a good word to have everything in place needed for whatever direction the company was taking. He would, you know, he would get it done. He took the steps that um, you'd have to take some far out steps sometimes just to make sure that every department was coordinating, coming through on time. Very, very good manager, and he was very pro the education uses of the Apple II. So. You know, he, myself, a lot of the early people at Apple have that in common. Um, and I really appreciated the fact it came a lot from his own daughter who got into the computer very early and, and was was developing fast because of it. Some kids will, some won't. But it inspired him, motivated him. Pro, pro Apple II, pro Apple II in education, pro any computer in education. And that was good for Apple. And I, I think that uh, Dell would be a tremendous asset wherever he is. You mentioned uh, Mike Markula being uh, one of the, the primary forces behind Apple Works. Uh, anything else about him? Well, you often hear about Steve Jobs when I started this company, but we didn't know anything about business. Mike Markula really was knew how to start a company. He'd been successful. He had retired at a young age after making a million dollars on a stock option at Intel. And he had been wanting to do a computer in the home his whole life. He'd been thinking about it. And here he saw the Apple II, which was kind of ahead of its time. And he thought this was the product to kick things off with. And he knew how to formulate a strategy for developing a business that could grow to a big Fortune 500 company. He knew how to hire, which kinds of people, what departments needed to be covered, how to no notice when you're lagging somewhere and how to get things corrected. He knew how to establish a business. And he really, um, uh, because he saw that, and he just dumped in a bunch of his own money, wrote a check for the equivalent of millions of dollars today, of today's dollars. He just wrote it to us blindly and joined us and started working full-time doing our marketing, and he really made the company. And he's also a very ethical person up front. Anything he tells you, you can trust, and um, he's, just, he's just very broad. Whatever he does, he'll, he'll get it done. He's, uh, he's together. He'll be successful at it. Uh, 
We mentioned Randy Wigginton uh, and Chris uh, Espinoza was another. These were uh, guys, as I understand it, who uh, used to give rides to the user group meetings. Yeah, Randy and Chris also were both young, although they were going to the early user meetings before Apple, and they were um, they were both in high school, and they both attended the high school I went to, which was Homestead High School in Cupertino, and we became friends, and we had things to share. They both liked the computer I was working on, and. They came in and joined us when we started Apple and helped starting right early demo software and checking out things in the garage. And You know, these were in the days before you have a company that has to pay anybody who does any work at all for you. A guy can come over and drink a couple Cokes and test basic for you all night long and find a couple bugs and help you fix them. And it's all done for free, for friendship, you know, voluntary. That was the fun thing about those days. Now, now Apple couldn't have somebody just kind of come in and do a little job and give them some free advice. You know, and I mean, you have to pay them somehow, or risk on this one. Uh, another one of the early people was Rod Holt. I understand he designed the power supply. Yes, Rod Holt was a an analog type engineer that you know knew how to design circuits with coils and capacitors, a different type of engineer than I was, who was more oriented towards logic circuits. And Steve Jobs had met him at Atari, respected him highly, partly because of Rod's. He had a very um, organized thinking, a type of thinking that was highly ordered and he had rules for things and I, he just came across as one of those types type of guys that you know you'd like to know, some people would like to know and uh, he'd be very capable of solving problems when they came up. He had good approaches and that's true, that's what I say about Rod and he, he learned a lot of um, even computer programming and enjoyed it and he had a lot to contribute to us um, in the early days and we were lucky to have him, he had a lot of clear thinking and he was sort of because I was sort of the key designer of the computer and the other and I was kind of quiet the other executives kind of Rod didn't really have a companion sometimes when he saw the right things that I would agree with I was too quiet to, to join him and so sometimes Rod didn't have as much power as the other five people that ran the company the first day of years but when it came to designing circuits he was well respected and contributed an awful lot especially to the floppy disk Mike Scott has forgotten um, out of order to things more than anyone else that was in the early starting of Apple. He was our first president. He guided the company up through uh, being you know, the fastest growing Fortune 500 com company of all time. It was all that growth was really under him, except the little last bit of the growth. He was gone, but it was because of things he'd instituted. He really did uh, an amazing job and was kind of forgotten, neglected, was thought of as not being capable of participating in future growth by Apple. He was just, he was a guy who could tell jokes, who could just do things on the side. If a programmer wanted to develop a neat project in his home, like Randy Wigginton developing MacWrite or something like that, Mike Scott would just buy him some printers and computers out. He'd find a way to do it out of Apple's budget and, and just set him up to do it in his home. He would do, take the little sides that you have to do outside the normal structure of a company to get good things done. He understood the side of how, how do you get some good creative projects done from within a large company. And he was left out partly because he didn't fit the structured approach that Apple was growing into as it became more um, wealthy and significant. How about uh, third-party people? I don't know how many of them that you met. Roger Wagner says you went hang, glide, uh, hang gliding with him once uh, in Mexico. Did, yeah, did. Um, had a great time. Didn't We didn't get much wind that day, so we didn't do that good of hang gliding. But, um, I, I, it's hard to go back that many years and remember remember everyone, but I met a lot, especially at shows, a lot of really good 
third-party people and had some good friendships and just remember going out and doing fun things with them and, you know, kind of partying and talking about what was going on. And uh, one of the most amazing things was for me, once in Chicago, I got to meet Lord British. And, you know, this guy that looked like a little kid just out of school came up and shook my hand and it's like, I, I had read some stories about him and how he had written a certain type of game and where it came from in his life. And it was like an amazing moment for me and I felt things go on in my gut that people must have all the time when they meet me. It was like I was meeting, you know, somebody that was like, like a dream person uh, uh, to me, you know, a, a king or something. I know that you can go on for hours about that stuff, so uh, telling very humorous stories. And I've got six kids from 4 to 16 years old. They're all using the computer. And uh, that keeps me real busy because I, I can only deal with about one of them at a time. And it's getting so hard to answer questions now. And I'm really kind of, I don't have the time anymore to program because I'm always using the computer. So I'm more of a user now and I kind of miss those days, but I know they can't come back. You can't do the kind of development I did and have a family. And I feel sorry for that. But there's a lot of people in that situation and that's just how the world has to work. I really appreciate your uh, taking the time to do this. Well, I wish I could be at the meeting. I wish I could be at the meeting because I could entertain everyone well, but I'll make one sometime. Uh, thank you very much. Okay, well, thank you very much for making it so easy for me, too. Okay, take care, Steve. Okay. See you around, Tom.